So usually in the evening talks we try to address a issue, something which has been probably coming up in quite a number of you, some aspect of the teaching which may be helpful, which serves. And of course there is this way that uh, we bring, at least that's the intention, to help you bring an understanding, a clarification in relationship to how to apply the teachings of the Buddha. And tonight I'd like to address the topic of the difficult states of mind, which are often called the three roots that cause affliction greed, hatred, and delusion. And in fact, I'll be speaking of the two first ones. And Miyoshin on Monday will be speaking about delusion, seeing through delusion, hopefully, (laughs) which is uh, the understanding of wisdom. When we see through greed, meaning the transformation of greed or craving is the manifestation of generosity, and the transformation of hatred or aversion is the manifestation or the expression of loving kindness and compassion. So we really truly understand that in the teachings of the Buddha, there are veils that cloud the purity or the natural quality of the radiant mind and that often get in the way of these beautiful qualities of heart and mind. And yet, they are not inherent to the mind. This is why it's so wonderful to be able to be in this very space where we can work with our minds, and we can see through the causes of difficulty, hardship, suffering, distress, lack of peace, however you want to call the state of the mind when it's taken by these mental states. Now, when these mental states play themselves out without our recognition, they can call a lot of suffering. And we can truly sense this in the world today. I mean, it's amazing how much we see the root cause of suffering happening through the expression of greed on one side and aversion on the other. And it's based in ignorance, not seeing clearly, really understanding that the base, the ground of the suffering is to not see clearly what is its cause. And so we are given here an opportunity to step out of this ignorance and use our minds so wisely, so compassionately, to really sense that there's another way. And the deepening of our understanding, of course, comes through this very clear quality of recognition. 
which of course here we call mindfulness, a quality of presence. So we are clarifying exactly what is happening in each moment. Now naturally a number of other afflictive emotions come along, emerge from these states. You know, it's like we think, oh, these are the three, and then <laughs> what about all the others? Well, there's definitely uh, afflictive emotions that emerge from these states. They're kind of, you know, three big categories, but naturally fear, anxiety, attachment, jealousy, envy, conceit, pride, vanity, distress, and I could go on and on and on with the list of everything that is causing torment in our state of mind and torment in the world. Now, we often resist looking at these mind states, and I'm sure that you've been noticing this. We don't want to really open our eyes and our heart to look at them because they don't feel so pleasant. So we rather find a strategy, and so much of our time in our practice is trying to find a way out, <laughs> rather than to really see what is happening. So when I first heard these teachings, which invited me to meet the afflictive emotions, it was during a month-long retreat. It was after just a one day doing a an introduction to Vipassana. I was in Nepal and I was following Tibetan teachings and suddenly my dear teacher left to teach to the Dalai Lama and therefore I was kind of left with nothing but fortunately at that time had a very good circumstance. Uh, Joseph, whom you all know, was in Nepal and he left us a note and saying, Saido Pandita is teaching in town, a month retreat, would you like to join? There's still spaces. So this was my introduction, a month <laughs> retreat with Saido Pandita. And no small deal, because if you know Saido, he was a very fantastic teacher, very demanding, and very, very fierce in his way of, there's no way out here. <laughs> you look and you really <laughs> look very intensely. And so when I first heard this teaching from him to invite me to meet the afflictive emotions, I thought I had not heard well because I had not <laughs> heard this teaching before. I said, why would I want to be with more suffering? <laughs> Well, I was coming to really get rid or to find a solution. And he said, the solution is to look, not to avoid. So he was very clear in his transmission. <laughs> and I didn't quite understand what it meant then, which of course, it's the same for all of us, right? Because when we begin to look, we drown. Therefore, uh, we're often facing a little more suffering than when we were in avoidance or resistant. But we learn. We learn to be with in skillful ways. And that's exactly what I'd like to address tonight, to speak to. And just um, taking an example at first, you see we may have anger coming up. And so in our ordinary way of being, we 
ruminate over our anger, how we have the right to be angry at this situation or at this person. And then we justify it with thoughts that just reinforce the mental state of anger, saying, I'm really angry at this person and I have the right to be because of what they've been doing to me. And therefore, I fuel the mind state of anger and cause more suffering. How is that happening? With the thoughts. We reaffirm somehow the state. And this is exactly what has been happening in a number of us when we practice. So there's a felt sense of increase of the painful feeling and therefore a resistance. And it's completely normal that that is happening because whether you know it or not, we are in the learning process. And I still feel that I'm very much in the learning process. And I think that it's so nice and helpful to be able to have a seat where you are a learner. And that even if there isn't an instrument which tells you exactly where you are, you know, like you would play the violin or the piano and you have a tone and you know exactly what the tone is, our instrument here is our body and our mind. And therefore, to recognize and to allow ourselves to be in this seat as a learner, as a person which doesn't know much, and to give over the trust to mindfulness over and over again, to recognize what it's like when there's a feeling of a painful state, then there's a very different attention which comes about. Because the special ingredients that mindfulness hold are clear perception, non-judgment, kindness, care, and just a reflection of what is. Nothing added. And the magic, you can say, of mindfulness is that it will naturally move in the direction of supporting the wholesome and move in the direction of diminishing the unwholesome states. That's exactly what mindfulness does, if we let it. Now that's the big <laughs> thing, is often we are in a state, as I'm saying, where we try to find ways that we figure out, which is completely normal. We have thoughts. We have ways that we resist what is happening. And it's part of the learning process. If we begin to sense that, then our way of relating begins to be a little more satisfying, a little more less painful. So I'd like to address this tonight, speaking first of this wanting mind, which, of course, we all know. Even if we've had years of practice, there's still <laughs> moments 
of that wanting due to certain causes and conditions. It can be very subtle. It can be just not even a thought, but a movement, a little oop, energy in the mind, just a very unsettled feeling that happens, and it's the force of wanting. So naturally, it can be also very gross, right? That burning desire, unquenchable thirst, as it is called. That's the exact translation of the word tanha. It runs very deep in our consciousness because of certain causes and conditions, our culture. But it's not inherent to the mind. So this is a driving force that we will see happening and we need to be able to relate to it in a way that is helping us see more clearly what is happening, not live in ignorance. So what happens when wanting is there? We become seduced by the pleasant and we get attached to the pleasant. And it can be sight, sound, taste, thoughts, wanting objects, having experiences in relationship to meditation. It can be many things, right? I mean, wanting can really be manifesting in relationship to anything, really. So we mistakenly believe that our happiness is dependent upon having a number, and usually a big number, of pleasant states, pleasant moments in our life. And of course, we bring that in our meditation. Even if our realm of life is kind of narrowing down in a retreat center, <laughs> very much so, we can still see this force in relationship to the context that we're living in. And it's quite extraordinary that we have this context and it's still happening. So we have a lot of them and we can have pleasant states. And as I said the other night, they're not a problem at all. May we enjoy them. Yet we understand that a moment of temporary gratification that's called pleasure and not a very clear, lasting satisfaction or happiness fails often to deliver the lasting happiness that we wish to have. And that is why probably we are here at the Force Refuge. And that's why people maybe seek some way where we sense that there's another potential for us. Now, what we really begin to see as practitioners is that it's looking at the object, looking at the person, trying to find satisfaction in the experience that is going to do it. And unfortunately, we see that it's not quite working the way that we want it to work. But we need a lot of relationship with ourselves to begin to see and to witness that the type of desire is a very specific one, that type of craving. 
The Buddha's words on this is, greed or craving is an endless and pernicious cycle that only brings suffering and unhappiness in its wake. Now we need to know that it's a very specific type of desire. Because often there's confusion. Should I not have any desire then? Well, people who don't have any desire at all may tend to have some sense of depression, right? So that the desire is manifesting in relationship to being addicted. And it's not at all to be confused with, I would say, a healthy sense of desire, which is called, and it has a name, the name is chanda, which means it's a wholesome quality to accomplish good deeds, for example, to wish well to ourself and another being. So this form of desire is essential in order to aspire to. And there's no doubt that the Buddha had a great sense of urge, spiritual urgency and determination to accomplish the awakening. And I'd like to just offer a, a quote from Achan Suchito about this. He says, some form of desire is essential in order to aspire to and persist in cultivating the path out of dukkha, which means suffering. Desire as an eagerness to offer, to commit, to apply oneself is called chanda. In fact, you could summarize dhamma training as the transformation of tanha into chanda. It's a process whereby we guide volition, wholesome intention, and hold on to the steering wheel and travel with clarity toward our deeper well-being, toward liberation. So we're not trying to get rid of desire, which would take another kind of desire, wouldn't it, he says. Instead, we're trying to transmute it, take it out of the shadow of gratification and need, and use it as aspiration to bring us into light and clarity, really leading towards wisdom. So we understand that it's that craving, which is a sense of endless cycle born of addiction. Now we can know how this manifests, and I think that the best way that we can really sense that desire which is a cause for more pain, is that there is tension. There's a real sense of tension in the mind, tension in the body. So there's a pull which is strong to really get that thing, and it may be very gross, and it can be very subtle, but there's a sense of anxiety, energetic agitation when this type of tanha is present. There's a holding. There's a clinging. That's how we can really notice the difference between the two. So how to know? Well, ask the question as 
Miosin was speaking the other night, sometimes questions are extremely valuable. Is there tension here? Is there a sense of contraction? Is there a wanting in relationship to something which is manifesting? And a wanting which is born out of a neediness, some sense of self-gratification. So we actually sense this with the quality of mindfulness itself. And what we see is that wanting engenders wanting. And that's where the delusion lies. There's the idea that when I get that thing, whatever it is, then finally I'll know peace. But it's based in a wrong view, in a belief, because it's caught in a cycle of a never-ending loop if it's born out of that root. So what the Buddha says very clearly is that the happiness or the peace from that type of craving is not completely and only coming from getting the object, but it comes from the release of that desire, the release of the craving, the absence of that mental state in our own stream of consciousness. And this we've all have been able to taste, the taste of freedom from desire. If we explore really well, we clearly sense that that stopping of the wanting, of the desire, even if it's in relationship to getting the thing that we wanted. You know, It could be that we wanted a wonderful meal at lunchtime, which maybe was served exactly what you wanted to have for lunch, and you get it, and so there's a sense of satisfaction. So some of that relief comes from the getting of the object, or it may be a very peaceful, finally calm sitting after having had a cycle of difficult ones. And so you can appreciate that moment. And so you, you feel, okay, things have changed, conditions have changed, but you can also bring in very clearly maybe the release from that tension, from that sense of wanting. And this, of course, is not done only once. This is what the practice is about. This is what we're going to be looking at over and over again, experiencing from the place of interest that was spoken about from the ocean the other night, investigation, interest, and calm. Both. This balance of quality of mindful awareness born out of a settledness, a groundness, and that quality of investigation, which of course then brings us into clear seeing. Wisdom comes forth in relationship to this. And then rather than me looking at mind states, there's a real sense of awareness and mindfulness and wisdom looking at causes and conditions, 
trusting that we see the Dharma unfolding, the truth, what is happening, and we notice, oh, this is a cause and a condition which has this effect, and there's a whole process here, very dynamic, very clearly experienced from a place of great interest. Just yesterday, I could experience this. I was doing a little bit of walking practice in my cottage down there, and I was walking, and I was quite present, and suddenly I noticed my body was leaning forward. Mm. Just a little bit of tension in the upper body. So I stopped and I thought, okay, what's going on here? And I was noticing the underlying force of wanting, which created a sense of unsettledness. Being attached to wanting, and the phrase came, oh, this is so subtle. (laughs) That was the the phrase that came up. It's so subtle, I really want to see this a little more clearly. And the wanting and the attachment to subtlety, to see really very, very, very clearly sensations in a microscopic way, you can say, made me just lose balance in relationship to the settledness and the wanting was taking over. Now, in that very moment of seeing, mindfulness was present and there was a release. As simple as that. So it can happen in any moment that we can strengthen the mindfulness to see more clearly and that quality of mindfulness balances us in a very, very simple way. It was a big insight when I saw the pull and the tension and how nice when in that very second the grip of the mind, which is exactly the grip of my fist, which is closed right now, and the open hand. It's very subtle, but there's attachment one moment and there's no attachment the next. And when we're sensitive and we're present, we feel the suffering and the absence of suffering. It's quite extraordinary to see (laughs) how in a very simple movement of a foot, of just being in presence, how that can manifest and how it can be released. So, of course, the, the line of the Buddha can be uh, stated here when he says, the end of suffering is the end of craving. The end of craving is the end of suffering. So it's helpful to really spend some time checking the attitude in our mind. What quality of mind are you meditating with? Really checking and taking the time to notice what is manifesting. Ask yourself that question. It's kind of a wake-up call. Like... I noticed, just not be so inclined to look at the objects, but the mind that's meditating. 
from that place, there's a whole field of interest that can open up where we sense the relationship to what is happening. And that's exactly where the practice can lead to the end of suffering. Because it's not about the objects. As I was saying, it's in the quality of the mind. Is there wanting or is there no wanting? And mindfulness will slowly recognize that quality of mind. It's getting attuned to it if you incline the mind towards seeing that, noticing and recognizing what's happening. So recognition, paying attention, of course, is the first step. And then what happens when we recognize is that often there's resistance. And so this is the whole other aspect of acceptance, which we need to bring in, allow, accept, meet it the way that it is. And that takes a lot of goodwill. It's huge, the goodwill that it takes. That we just don't leap in going into trying to find ways, strategies, to figure out how we're going to be more clever (laughs) than the state that's present. And of course, this is going to happen. You know, in our relationship with ourselves, we're going to get involved, we're going to push away, we're going to drown, and we're going to resist and put at a distance. But at one moment we see, wow, this is really kind of causing even more difficulty. So what's another way? Taking another track, and that other track is, oh, maybe simplicity, allow. That wanting mind maybe is something that can be seen for what it is. In itself, the wanting mind is not a problem. And that's what we begin to see. Oh, this is wanting. How does wanting feel? What does it feel like? And we get interested in it. The resisting, the avoiding, the reacting to is where the problem lies. This is where we hold on. So because wanting is going to be like anything else, it's going to rise and pass. In the same way that the most pleasant fantasy can arise and pass. Or a beautiful sound. So this is a very interesting way to look at practice. We want to be looking and meeting exactly what is happening in relationship to this mind state. Now, in the same way, I'm going to be talking about the second one, which is aversion or hatred. There is definitely no seduction here. (laughs) We are not seduced, yet this energy or mind state is pushing away, doesn't want to feel the unpleasant experiences. And of course, here we have a very great field of experience, which is difficult body sensation. Right? I mean, so much of our practice is happening with all the sitting and you know, walking, 
there's no doubt that we're going to be in the presence of difficult body sensations, really difficult in the states that they're painful, right? Or mind states. And so there's the not wanting in the mind, not wanting to feel the unpleasant experience, as simple as that. So we think, and the belief is that if I separate, disconnect, put at a distance this experience, then my life will be okay. It's the flip side of greed. Really, they're two sides of the same hand. And in a way, I think it's, at least for some people, it's easier to connect and to see the painful aspect in relationship to aversion because it's definitely not seductive, as I was saying. So we sense the, the painful aspect to this mind state. And the Dalai Lama says, absolutely nothing is not worthy of our attention. Please look when there is aversion in your mind. He says, often the difficulties that we encounter are the places that most wake us up. We wake up because we want to really understand what is going on. So here we have different forms of aversion. Definitely some are very active, like anger, which can be vented out, right? Ill will, irritation at someone, and this is kind of the force of irritation, ill will, cruelty that we may see happen in the world at times. And there can be very subtle forms of very subtle frustration, irritation, annoyance for a little thing which really is not meaningful at all. And yet, there's the presence of that type of quality. So it can be very huge, gross, or very subtle. And then there are passive forms. Here, all the layers of worry, preoccupation, fear, despair, hopelessness. And this is a way that we can sense that we withdraw. There's a retreat. There's a way that we are pulling back. So one way is kind of venting, acting out because it's fueling and often very painful to feel when there is kind of a full-blown anger or rage. So the acting out is just, we feel so much in pain. We want to pull it out. Now the other form is like a frozen state where we really sense this feeling of pulling back, withdrawing, you can say, and it happens in the mind. And of course, there's also softer forms, like boredom. Boredom belongs to that category also, that kind of disinterest, right? So uh, a sense of very clearly 
pulling back. Now the, the obvious attitude is, let me get rid of this and everything will be fine. That's kind of the ordinary way we uh, usually attend to it. If only I get rid of that, then of course, no more burden in my life. Well, it's not quite working like this because uh, we <laughs> sense that unfortunately the disconnect, the loss of touch is yet adding another layer, meaning that we are reacting in the way of retreating, but it's yet another form of aversion, where we put aversion on top of aversion. And we're not really sensing the peace with that attitude. So adding another layer of reactivity, bringing more pain, then reacting to the painful feeling with aversion. And then, of course, the loop here is so often that there's judgment. And judgment is another form of aversion. We react to the aversion with aversion. And it's so painful and so frustrating when this happens. So we get more angry and often hopeless. And then we can have a phrase like, I can't stand myself. I just can't stand being aversive. I hate myself for re reacting this way. Or I just feel so shameful in relationship to what's happening. It's all about me. And in relationship to causes and conditions coming together and just being what they are because of certain circumstances, maybe, as I said, you sitting and no doubt there can be discomfort in the body. Makes total sense. And you just feel unease. Causes and conditions that create a certain presence of something. Why own it? Why bring this sense of me, my practice which is going so bad and have self-aversion in relationship to what is happening. So we're feeding the pain when this is happening, not noticing it, of course. But I think it's helpful to really sense that the thoughts, the loops, the cycle of reactivity may really be reinforced by the thoughts that are added on the direct experience and to bring some attention to that. Because otherwise, it's an endless loop of suffering. We reinforce the resistance and increase the level of hatred. And this is not what the teaching of the Buddha is talking about. It really is the reverse, the end of suffering. So what can we do? When aversion or anger or frustration, annoyance, fear, 
a sense of shame is present, like any other mind state, it will come and go and it needs to be seen for what it is. With mindfulness, there's a clear seeing and that's it. That's the way to go. It does not need to define who we are. It's not personal and it's not owned. That's what happens when there's a real quality of mindfulness. This is really what is happening. And there are plenty of moments of, well, being with, and it's okay. We don't add the reactivity. So this takes courage. It takes the strength of heart, which is not going in the sense of striving or putting a lot of, you know, will. It's more the strength of heart coming from a place of gentle perseverance. Really a sense of very clear tenderness of heart, which mindfulness holds. There's a softness of awareness. And often it's the way that we pull away, and I know for my own way of practice that I've been pulling away because in the stream of consciousness and my education, having been told that I should really be a very loving being. And that when aversion is present, it's bad. That's my stream of consciousness and way of really noticing the pattern. And so instead of meeting it and allowing it, I pull back because I'm saying this is wrong. So we may each have our own way, pattern, habit, energy, and story, history, really, that comes along, that we can see, right? Um, If there's a version, I'm an unlikable being. Now, because in our practice, now we're talking here about the process of meditation leading to the end of suffering. Remembering that, yes, it's not appropriate to act out (laughs) and vent your anger on someone. But it's completely appropriate in meditation to meet those mind states. And I know that I have been preventing myself from really deepening my meditation process, my learning, and and thinking that it's wrong to begin to look at that aspect, you know, what we may call the shadow, and really fuel only the lovable aspect. So we really sense that our intention, and if we are in our seat, And when we have this difficulty, bring in a sentence, a phrase of wholesome motivation. Because the intention is a pure one. The intention to look, to see more clearly, and to understand 
about what purifies the mind and heart from clinging, then we can trust that that wholesome intention will naturally fuel a quality of relationship and then bringing in the quality of tenderness and metta in this whole relationship. So we have the confidence rather than the doubt, rather than the shame, rather than the blame. And for me, it has shifted the whole process in relationship to the difficult mind states. They are sticky tendencies and very strong habits of mind. And they've been probably here for quite some time. So it's not done just like, you know, magic stick and whoop, looking once. This needs kind of a a process where you really sense, oh, wow, I've seen this. And then two days later, you see it again. For heaven's sakes, how come it's not gone? (laughs) Why is it not uprooted, you know? I thought I was done with this one, right? (laughs) The mental pattern and whatever the story. Well, it takes a little more time to really sense that maybe there are other ingredients which still fuel it. So we relate in a way that we learn a greater sense of balance. And we try to find ease, even if it's difficult. At times, we'll be in the presence of a very strong resistance. And the mind will scream, no. I don't want to be with this. And the thought is one of complete aversion. If that is the case, I've been seeing that it's very helpful to allow for that thought of no to be part of the process. Again, If there's a mental resistance, it lingers, and it's kind of a pattern that comes back, notice it. Bring some attention to that. And okay, seeing it, noticing it, feeling it, and come into the body. Because it's in the body that there's a way that we will find a sense of a ground. There's some material element here that's helpful. The thought patterns, right, are clearly very quick. But we're creating a setup, and the mind may be anticipating. And it's not the reality, it's the thought construction. And you want to see the belief that says, no, it's impossible to be with this. And actually, nothing is impossible. So... You work, and you find ways that you adjust, you adapt, and the mind begins to be a little more flexible. This is exactly when you want to bring maybe a little bit of metta in your practice or compassion. 
to really go in the direction of greater ease rather than staying fixed and entangled in tension. But the resistance is also part of that process. So we practice with wanting mind. We practice with aversion. We get caught up in the stories. And we also see how the stories have an end. They are never here forever. And Sayadaw Upandita, that very same retreat that I was clearly over and over again in a very consistent way saying, I can't be here. It's impossible to be with this. And he would have the greatest strength of heart to look at me in the eyes straight. Yes, you can. (laughs) Nothing is impossible. Yes, you can. And it was just so amazing, the trust that he had in me that I could, that I definitely didn't have one moment. And I'm so grateful today to be able to say that that way of someone who trusts that it's possible to open, to release, to free the mind, even if It's not done once, but stay in the process, recognize, stay mindful. Nothing needs to change. And that was his message. Nothing needs to change. You have these circumstances, these conditions. This is the momentary reality. This is what we work with. It's going to change. No doubt, but for the moment, it's like this. Doing the best that you can, and yes, it's possible. Stay interested in the process. I can really hear his voice in this moment. It's just amazing how strong this teaching was. And the teaching was to trust mindfulness and to not add any layers to the best possible way of adding, it's not possible, I can't do it, the story, you know, that we all have. And if it's there, we see it. It's not about not having it, but we see it. Okay, this is what I tell myself, that it's not possible. And yet mindfulness helps us stay in the process. Another teacher that... Uh, I've been working in recent years is Saida Utejaniya. And he's also very keen on looking at the defilements. Some of you have worked with him. And he says, most yogis make the mistake of expecting good experiences. They want the good experiences in meditation instead of trying to work with the difficult ones. So that's exactly what we're talking about. 
So it's not to dismiss the good experiences, not at all. But when it's not so easy, stay engaged. Because as the Dalai Lama was saying, and I've seen for myself, and as many yogis have seen, when it's difficult, this is where we need to bring our strength of heart, but they are the places that wake us up the most. Because they are the places where we feel suffering, where we feel entangled. And this is exactly the places where we want to have a feeling of liberation. So to avoid, you're just putting on hold for the next retreat, next time. (laughs) So it may be. But here is the opportunity. So with a very clear sense of balance, holding ourselves in recognition moment by moment with a balanced state of mind, with all the qualities that we've been talking, Miyoshin and myself, and an attitude of looking at what is happening in the mind. Is there wanting, recognizing wanting, allowing for that experience, not retrieving, reacting in the best way that we can, allowing it. If mindfulness is present, there will be no identification. There's an openness and a release from clinging. Whatever it is, it will arise and pass as anything else. So it's not about liking or not liking. And that's so often the case, you know, that we think, oh, but I don't like this. Of course we don't like it. But as, you know, Saito Tijinya says, it's not about leading ourselves to just a sense of greater well-being, just comfort. These teachings are quite demanding, it's true, but they also have such a great high standard, liberation. Can you imagine? And it's not maybe full liberation, but any moment that we see clearly, that's a moment of liberation, of fullness, of peace, of rest, of ease. So may this be an inspiration to continue to practice. We'll just sit for a minute or two in silence to just absorb the words and appreciate the silence. And very clearly having a sense of appreciation for the moments when these mind states are not here. Really also recognizing that there are many moments of ease 
of well-being, of peace, of non-clinging. And they help us. They nourish us. They give us strength. when things get a little difficult, but really appreciating also all those moments where there's beauty, ease, sense of well-being. The end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.